live in a unique area. We come here for our own reasons. For some of us, our people have been here for an eternity. This is Northwest Neighbor. Conversations with people living in Northwest British Columbia. Hello and welcome to Northwest Neighbor. My name is Devin Wall. Today, my guest has been through a lot, and that's saying it mildly. In this episode, we have Alfred Pollat, or some people call him Alfie or Fred. Alfie, welcome to the welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Devin. So, so be, just before we get into everything that's kind of been going on with you recently. Let's go back to the beginning. Where were you born? I was born in Ontario, Pickle Crow, Ontario, which no longer exists. It was a small gold mining town. It no longer exists. Yeah, it was in northern Ontario. My my folks uh, emigrated from Germany, and that was one of the first places they came. <coughs> they worked there for, he worked in a gold mine there for probably three or four years, and then when they, uh, Alcan started up there, everybody, it was all all kinds of advertising and stuff, so then they came here to Kitimat. So what year did you guys come to Kitimat? I we came here in 57. And how old were you? Uh, three or four. Because I, uh, I was born in 54, so yeah, I go, give or take. I can't remember for sure what year it was, but yeah, around that time, I was just a tiny little kid. So what did you think when you guys came to Kitimat? Did you like it? Could you remember arriving here? Um, I think it was for little kids, I think, at that time, because the town still wasn't finished being built. And little kids, I mean, you think, you know, at that time, we didn't have internet, nothing like that. We just had stones and sticks and, and our steel tonka toys and stuff and there was lots of mud and things like that so yeah we had a great time playing and outside and doing all that kind of good stuff for for us for the kids it was great and i think just because it was a brand new town kitimat was a planned town <coughs> it didn't just grow up just have hazard right right so yeah it was it was pretty good i think for the folks my dad made good money and my mom later on worked at the hospital so yeah it was uh, it was a melting pot of of immigrants so it was an exciting time so fast forwarding through your teens, through your, into your adulthood, where did you work for mo the majority of your life? Okay, so I never did finish high school because at that time, uh, then Uricand Pulp and Paper came into being here. Not only that, but at that time there was an expectation just because of the way it was. Your dad worked at Alcan, so you got a job at Alcan. I didn't want to work where my dad did, so I got a job at Uricand Pulp and Paper. Now, what did you do there? I started off in the wood mill, just had to do with uh, the boards and things like that. And, and then I transferred out into the log yard, which was heavy equipment. So I just stuck with that. And then uh, they had was a department called Raw Materials, which was a furtherance of, uh, of heavy equipment. I just stayed with that. Well, obviously, Uricand had a sad, uh, there was a day where it shut down and everybody received a layoff notice. What was that like for you? It was my guts turned to liquid, really, because, I mean, you've, you're expected, like I said, we just lived our whole lives. You know, Uricand was our life. That was our family. So, but I mean, it just, yeah, when we got that notice, it was just kind of, what are we going to do now? Who's going to hire somebody that's in their 50s and all those kind of things, right? So, yeah, it was quite, uh, it was quite tumultuous time. So what did you do? What did you end up doing after you got laid off? Well, once we got laid off and then things got, I mean, obviously the government was there. They were, you know, all kinds of programs. You could upgrade your education, all those kind of things. So that I did, you know, I took a few courses, like safety courses, things like that. I was quite involved with the safety aspect at Uricand and 
lo and behold, uh, I've, the first one I got was they were taking down uh, a Methanex plant here. And uh, yeah, I, I got on. I, I worked there as a, as, a, as a safety coordinator for a bit. And then uh, when the, the Alcam project then it started, and then, geez, lo and behold, again, once again, they wanted experience. I mean, they had a lot of kids, you know, that came out of school, whatever. Yeah, they had all the certificates, but they had zero experience. So I got right back into the heavy equipment and stuff, and yeah, it was was a good time again everybody was making good money i think for the most part everybody that worked at Eurocan, maybe for the exceptional few we all made out a lot of a lot of people left early but uh, i think everybody made out really well and the town did we went through some lean years there but going back a little bit family life now you do have a wife i do how about you uh, how did you guys meet um i think the usual lots of parties around town and you know, we used to go to the arena and go skating and stuff and I think that's where the first time is that I met her was right. what well, was at the arena and that and then just yeah it just sort of went from there and they had the Tasty Freeze which is where the uh, Rosero's is now that used to be a drive-in uh, restaurant and of course anybody that at that time a lot of the high school kids that's where they always went to work restaurants Tasty Freeze and stuff like that so right right yeah so you ended up marrying her having some kids I have two kids yeah I have a boy who's 39 and Amanda, my daughter, she's, oh my goodness, she's 34, I believe. And a couple of, and some grandchildren? And I have some grandchildren. I have Ronan, who's 11, and he's autistic, but he does really be well. And then Addison, she's good, and she's uh, nine. She'll be 10 soon, so. So now, what do, what, what do you do for fun? Photography, I always like to do that. I always dabble in that a little bit. I was actually quite involved with uh, with videography. Um we had the uh, like the Channel Ten at that time, what it was called. But they had the Winter Games here, so they were looking for people to run video cameras. And my friend and I, we just thought, okay, we'll just see what it's like. And I guess I was good at it because they asked me to do more stuff. And I just yeah, on and off over the years, I've always dabbled in it here and there. What draws you to that? What uh, makes it interesting for you? <sighs> just like the people that you see, and I just think. Uh, like when you watch programs on TV and you think, oh yeah, you know what, I can do that. I think because we live in the North, sometimes we sort of get forgotten and I think it's nice to expose it. Right. Right. We're sort of like the forgotten people, if you will, kind of a thing. There doesn't a lot. And I thought, yeah, it'd be kind of nice to do that. Like hockey games, we did hockey night and Kinemat, those kind of things. It just makes it fun for the people too, right? Exactly. Definitely. <clears throat> Excellent. So now with all that going on, fast forwarding a little bit, a few years ago, Something happened. You had a sore back. Uh, I was. It was October. I was changing. I was changing winter tires on my truck, and I was changing the tires on my wife's car. So I was up on the ladder, and I reached over to put the tires away, and I felt a sneeze coming on. So I was overextended and a big sneeze, and I just felt a sharp pain in my back, and just assumed I had pulled a muscle. Which even after going to the doctor, he said, "Yeah, that's." kind of strange or whatever and just you know took painkillers and whatever and it just seemed to subside somewhat after a while but it was just was always it was always there it would flare up at the odd time and go wow it's taken a long time to heal when did you suspect something else was wrong um so then that was october and november and then around christmas time i got really sick i got pneumonia and i got pneumonia like i got sick really quick um i ended up in the icu in terrace i almost uh almost didn't make it then and they just couldn't figure out wow that I got pneumonia that badly and, and just that quickly and there were some counts of, of, of blood uh, 
whatever the blood counts were and everything else. So they kind of had some suspicion, but because I was a diabetic too, they kind of didn't look. That, I mean, it's a, the cancer I have, which is called multiple myeloma, it's not a common cancer, so it's not something that you would look for automatically. Right, So right. Um, I survived that, and I was going to physio here at the hospital and, you know, working out all that kind of stuff because I had been sedentary for a bit. And my back still bothered me, and my legs wouldn't obey me, so to speak. So I just think, oh, maybe it's a change in meds, and the doctor already said, well, you know what, we're going to send you for... Uh, a CT scan in Terrace and it was springtime and I usually make my trip to to uh, Prince George <clears throat> at my Costco run so I said yeah okay so that Monday morning I had the CT scan and away we went to Prince George lo and behold the next morning I get a phone call from the doctor's office asking me so uh, where are you so I said I'm going to Prince George he says don't move don't even uh, and he explained to me there was something wrong with my spine. There was something fractured there, and, and if I had gotten into an accident or whatever, I could be paralyzed. And he said there was a specialist just happened to be in Vancouver. He said he arranged uh, an appointment to go and see him. So uh, two days later, I went and seen that doctor. He did a few tests and everything else. He says, "Oh, he says you're coming with me to to Vancouver. That's to the Lionsgate Hospital there." And uh, yeah, three days later, I had an operation. To repair, what they did is they put a, I have um, plates and then screws and rods in my back to stabilize the middle part of my spine. And then they came back with a diagnosis and they said, yeah, you have a tumor and it's called multipyeloma. It's a, an incurable cancer and it, that's, it attacks the, uh, it's a blood cancer, but it attacks the bone. So thankfully, I say thankfully, all I had was just that one tumor. So I just uh, recovered from the operation and learned to took me a, a week or two to get back get my legs back and that kind of stuff and right so now when you were diagnosed what went through your head it was kind of a because we kind of suspected something but until somebody actually tells you so my wife and i went down seen the doctor and he's looking through his notes and he looks up and that's when he said he says you have multimyeloma and i'm going okay what's that and he says it's a cancer and he says and there's no cure so it's kind of like Everything kind of rushes past you. <laughs> you don't see anything in front of you. You're just right. kind of, wow, it's just, really? I have cancer and I have, and he said, and the, the survival rate is like, uh, you know, three to three to five years. He wow. gave me the, that's what the additional diagnosis was. I'm going, well, holy. So I'm already thinking, okay, so geez, I better figure out what I can do in the next three to five years. It was just kind of like that. Of course, my wife was very upset and crying in the whole thing but he said but however he says there's always a but there somewhere he said lots of people with the proper treatment and depending on how your body reacts he says people live longer lives now but that's just the standard they have to give you the textbook diagnosis right, right. which is three to five so i'm in my third year now and uh well you're still I going strong went, so. went through, <laughs> well i went through a lot of stuff um and i'll tell you i went uh so i ended up getting chemo in Terrace, and then uh, first I did radiation in Prince George for a week on that area. Then I came home and I did uh, chemo in Terrace the whole summer, and then uh, the oncologist in Prince George says, well, you're a good candidate for a stem cell transplant. They use stem cell transplants for many things these days, the health thing, and he said, I said, oh, really? So he explained it all. You just go to Vancouver, and what they do is they take your immune system and give you a bunch of drugs, take your immune system right down to zero, which unbeknownst to me at the time, is quite the quite the process. So, um, 
September, October, I headed down to Vancouver ahead of my wife and I had a battery of tests. I had all just to see how good of a candidate did a heart this and all all kinds of stuff and dyes and your all it was just yeah, I felt like a guinea pig there at times. And then they said, Okay, now what we're gonna do is we're gonna give you these drugs and what they'll do is they'll multiply the stem cells in your bloodstream. And uh, I forget what they're called, but they're not cheap. They're $3,000 a piece. These Wow. Yeah. Anyway, so what it does, it's kind of like if, you know, picture like a hose of water, if you will, and now you're trying to put too much. There's only so much water is going to go in there, but the cells keep multiplying. And so that's what you feel. So the pain in your whole body is those cells multiplying. So it becomes quite painful. Cause so it is quite the painful crowding. experience then? It, it is. It, it's, the, I mean, it's, you know, with, they give you painkillers and everything else. So then uh, they keep going, they keep taking numbers, and they say, okay, you're ready to, there's a day that comes where they said, now we're, what we're going to do is we're going to take your stem cells and we're going to harvest them and have a special machine, whatever. And we'll know, okay. So that day comes and they say, usually it takes two days so you do one day, and then you do the next day. So I was there. I was there the first day. They hook you up to this machine. There's a big rod that goes in one arm, and it goes through the blood, goes out, and it goes through a special machine, which it washes the blood or checks it and does all kinds of things, comes back around, it goes back into the other arm. So through the course of six to eight hours, your blood is totally taken from you, gone through this machine, comes back in your body. Luckily, when they were done, they said, oh, we only had to do, you, were, you had enough... Uh, Stem cells, we don't have to do a second draw. So I'm going, oh, thank goodness. Because you have to lay there perfectly still. You can't move. And yeah, it's just, that's quite the experience. So then to get the stem cells back in again, and everything is outpatient. So we rented a place in Vancouver, which not cheap either. You come to find out there's certain things they pay for, certain things they don't. But regardless, so then you go every day to the hospital and they give you, again, they give you all these different injections to bring your immune system down. I was getting weaker. Um, it was hard to me for even, like, my wife would just, we weren't that far from the from the hospital, but my wife actually had to help me to get me into the taxi. I just had zero for energy, and uh, it was already, like, um, like diarrhea, like crazy. I had sores in my mouth, and my throat was just, it was like, it's like you're rotting away on the inside. Right, would right. be the only way to describe it. Really, it was just yeah. I felt like I wanted to die. <laughs> so, then finally, the day comes where they introduce the cells back to you, and that probably took. It's just like going for blood transfusion, which I had a few of them. Uh, that might have took maybe a half hour at the very most. The bag is up there, and they're monitoring you. There's a bunch of doctors in there, make sure everything going good, and they stick the needle in there, and they start the IV, and yeah, half an hour I was done. They said, okay, that's it. Then the recovery process, which is better because you're slowly improving, even though you are really still weak. So finally, by the end of end of November, everything was good. I never had any complications. Uh, I never ever got sick. That was just a thing. You can get sick just at the drop of a hat. Um, my wife took uh, really good care of me, <laughs> made sure I wasn't exposed to anything. I mean, as far as it was in our control. And then, uh, yeah, I think beginning of December, then I went came home. During this whole period of time, what was what was going through your head? What was what was your mental state like? Um, like even the doctor saying your mental state, I, I would be a liar if I said it didn't bother me. I think it does, but I I think I am that kind of person. I've always been, I've always gone through adversity. I've always had it in my family, so I don't know if that was just setting me up for like even for this, even my wife. But just okay, you know, it sucks, but. 
let's carry on. That's just how I am. I mean, sometimes I, when I sit there by myself or whatever, but it's nice to have a partner that's there with you and shares it. It definitely cuts cuts everything in half definitely. if you're not doing it yourself. And and my family was 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 pretty good too. I mean, my daughter was pretty upset too. My, my son doesn't show a lot of emotion, but my daughter was. And then, of course, all my friends and family that, I mean, my wife's, all, all her, her co-workers at, at work, she worked at the credit union, they were just great, right? Lots of support like that. At, when it comes to times like this, yeah, it, it makes a big difference. So speak, like, speaking of your wife, how, how was she during this whole process? What, how did it visibly, did you see it visibly affect her? She's a rock. Yeah rock if, if she really had, I don't know that she ever like totally broke down I would say maybe she did on her own time whatever but I think same thing she's just that old Scottish stock you just you know <laughs> you roll up your sleeves and you go okay then let's get at her sort of a thing right right, right. Um, yeah it was there's trying times it's not to say because when regardless of what the situation is when you spend that much time together with another person cabin fever whether you like it or not it's a reality and on the occasion, it does. It gets tough. But for the most part, we learn to, to deal with it. Excellent. So you've uh, gone through your treatment um, through the stem cells. You've had the stem cells or the cells re reintroduced into your body. What came next? Then um, there's certain numbers that I was going for. Um, I go for blood tests every two weeks. I was going and, and the, the numbers, which I was getting into them because they're quite... The numbers weren't going right back up to where they should have been from the stem cell. They should have been up, like just from my hemoglobin, for example. We're always floating around the, the 80 and 90, which makes you anemic, and then you're always weak. They weren't getting up to 110 or whatever. I you know, could hardly figure it out. My legs were always this and that. and They were trying. They, were, they played around with my... I was still taking... Uh, chemo drugs so they just you know adjusted the meds of this and okay we, then I was on this other one they would adjust it and then lo and behold July 9th of this year I was in the living room in the hallway actually and uh, I don't remember any of this my wife said I called out to her she came into the hallway and I was laying there in the corner out I guess apparently I'd had a cardiac arrest and, uh, well, panic, didn't panic. She called 911, called a friend. Cops were the first ones on the scene because he just happened to be driving close by. Those two police persons, there was a woman and a man. They worked on me, plus the paramedics, they worked on me for 14 minutes. Wow. They finally got a heartbeat. So then they shipped me off to Terrace. I was in some kind of coma. And then I guess once I stabilized more, then they shipped me off to Vancouver. And that's my first recollection of anything was I woke up in Vancouver so that was another I spent 52 days down there by the time because obviously everything in my body was all like they couldn't just go ahead and say okay we're going to do this so once they checked they, they said oh yeah you've got a lot of blockages we're going to have to do bypass surgery and how much we're going to do yet we don't know there's a lot of mitigating factors you know your diabetes which was now out of control too just because of everything and and plus all of the other numbers and, and the cancer thing. And so, yeah, different drugs, different things like that to try and get me back to where they're able to do. So I was at a safe place to do the, do the operation. And, and sure enough, I, um, amazingly enough, when I was there, I was there for about two weeks and then I ended up with what they call C. diff. Mm -hmm. It's an infection you get when you're in the hospital. Yep. So I had to go through two weeks of that. 
which was another delay. And then so finally I got over that, and then the, the numbers went good, and uh, then the surgeon showed up, and, and the nurses and everything, they were great. Like, just for me being there that long, they named an elevator after me, so just <laughs> in jest because I was there so long. But so he said, okay, we're ready, and we're going to do... Uh, What's it called? Quintuple? So it's five. They did five. Uh, they did right, five right. of them. So, yeah. I said, geez, I just can't have two or three. I have to have the most you can do. So it was uh, in the morning. I was the first guy. I had the surgery, which was around three or four hours, I believe. And uh, I woke up, come out of it uh, in my room. And it was just, yeah, that, that surgery was, I don't know, you have to look. To look at the scars and say, okay, I, okay, I had surgery, and and they tell you because they break your breastbone open, all that kind of stuff. And it was, he said, yeah, everything went, everything went good. There was no complications. Didn't have to give any transfusions. Everything is all good. Let everything heal, and then uh, once you're ready to go, you can go home. And uh, other than waiting maybe a little bit longer, because I guess when they had worked on me, they cracked a few ribs, and what that did is it just put a little bit of a in my in my lungs. I had a, an embolism, if you will, a little thing of air. So you can't right. fly if you have that in there because it would cause. So I had to wait until that healed. So it was another two weeks of waiting in the hospital. So finally they sent me home and, uh, yeah, everything seemed, I, so far, I mean, up and down, but uh, it seems to be not bad. It's just it's the slow progress of recovery now. The last time I did my numbers, my oncologist, they were quite happy. The numbers were up. Um, I, I'm this kind of cancer doesn't go into remission. It just sort of, it just hibernates, if you will. It, right. it never goes right. into, so it's, it'll come back at some point, but when it does, it, it might never for a long time. So that's just, that's what I'm dealing with right now. So hopefully the, there's one extra drug that I'm taking. They, I, they might even take me off that soon, and I might just be on the one maintenance, which is one capsule a day, which is nothing really. When I see, when I seen, the, yeah, the things I seen, I like I said, I'm, when he goes, wow, you went through a lot. I said, you know what? <clears throat> I can still do. I can still do for myself. I don't need anybody looking after me um, initially from surgery. But I mean, I, I seen a lot, like from different when I was in the cancer ward, and and then even with the heart thing, I'm going. I count myself lucky, <laughs> even with all I've been through. It could have been a lot worse. Um, even the doctor down there, he's surprised that he says, wow. He says you're down that long without oxygen and you came back like usually there's brain damage or whatever I said well I says with me you couldn't tell anyways if there was brain damage so <laughs> and you were also saying in a previous conversation that we've had that those uh, two police officers came to to visit you at home and they were surprised it was actually interesting because the whole time I was in Vancouver because my daughter was looking after the house she said a couple times they actually came and knocked on the door they just wanted to know how I was doing they were quite uh, concerned so then when I came home I think two days after I was home, yeah, they actually came again. They were just checking, and they came to the door, and it was, geez, it was nice to, it was nice to see them and stuff. But unfortunately, I think the, the fella and I, my, their names escaped me, but he was getting transferred. But as far as I know, I think the woman is still here. Right. So I think, right. yeah, in July 9th, I'm going to celebrate a new birthday. So my birthday was, <laughs> but I think I'll change. You get two birthdays. I get two birthdays, but I was reborn that day, I guess, if you will. So it's just, yeah. It, definitely. What was it, what was it like waking up in the hospital, not knowing what happened? Um, because I'd been through previous, I'm going, okay, something's going on here. What the heck? And then gradually they tell you, and I don't believe them. I was angry. I guess I, I woke up the first time. Don't remember quite angry at my brother-in-law. I threatened to kick him in his, 
somewhere <laughs> and, uh, you know, get me out of here. And then I lapsed back into sleep or whatever it was. And then, yeah, when I came out of it, I came out of it, boom. Like, I, w- I didn't gradually. I was just, bang, I was awake. So with all these experiences that you've been through, how has it changed you personally? Personally, uh, a lot of things you have to let go in your life because I was telling Jen, I said, you know what? It was just that quick. I mean, I survived it, but when they tell me about it and I look at it and I'm going, okay, here I was in the hallway and all of a sudden you don't exist anymore. Just if I hadn't survived, boom, that was it. There's no getting your affairs in order and and, uh, that argument that you might have had with your daughter. You know, there's no going back. So just whenever possible, especially with your family and, you know, try not, that's just myself, try not to hold grudges and just, it makes for a much happier life, I think. Uh, what's life like for you now then? It's it's tough um, a little bit as far as trying to get back to doing things. But I mean, I, I think it's like I said, you know, you still maybe might have the argument and stuff like that, but it's definitely, it's it's much better. I think the wife and I, we have a, a renewed, whatever you want, commitment to each other, if you will, that that sort of a thing. You just go, well, right. you know what? This is a good thing. Let's just just not forget this. And it's not so much for me if I'm gone, but I mean, it becomes not really just about you. It's about the people that you leave behind. Right. 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 Because, well, so yeah, because for you, you're, you're gone. Got, you're gone, right? I'm gone. It doesn't matter to me, but it's the people that you leave behind. So you don't want to leave them with, you don't leave them with regrets, right? I guess for lack of a better word, or just, oh, Jesus, undone. So obviously there's not everything that you can control, but if you can, yeah, always be happy. So what are your expectations for life now? Uh, well, I'm hoping to win the lottery. Yeah. I mean, I think I've won it in a different way. So I'm thinking, okay, I've had that. I had this massive heart attack. I survived. I said, I, I should I should be able to win the lottery this time around. But no, I, I think I'll just carry on. Do what I can do at first. You're going, yeah, I want to do this and do that. And bucket list and all that. But yeah, you kind of got to back off a little bit. I'm 65 years old. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm in really good shape. But I think I'm going to... You know, when you start to do things now, you, you measure steps forward. Right. So. Right. Well, you know, for, for everything that has happened to you, you're super positive, super upbeat. So that's excellent. Okay. Thanks, Devin. Alfred Pollott was my guest on this episode of Northwest Neighbor, a man who doesn't give up when faced with life-threatening illness. If you have a story you'd like to tell us on Northwest Neighbor, please email hello at northwestneighbor.ca. Special thanks to Alfie for being my guest today and to Travis Wilson for providing photography. My name is Devin Wall. Join me next time in my conversations with people living in Northwest British Columbia.